and you have rather extensive notes in your bulletin, and we're not going to go through the entire, <clears throat> entire set of notes today. We'll probably make it through the first third. Now, if you're new with us, you say, oh, no, I knew it. Money. Pick the wrong week. Well, we're not going to talk about money the way you dread hearing about money and the way most pastors dread teaching about it, okay? We're going to cover in the next few weeks every possible perspective, every possible way that the scriptures look and talk about money. You say, well, why, why, do we, why are we going to spend so much time? Why are we going to look at, at, at money? Because for the simple reason that how you look at, how you relate to money has a tremendous bearing on your own spiritual fruitfulness. By the end of our time in discussing this very important subject, I think that you'll see, in fact, we'll look at a passage where Jesus says that if you cannot handle these things, earthly things, if you can't be a good steward over these, how can I trust you with the more precious, important things? And so how we deal with money, and, and there's many of us who are a little, a little confused. We don't, we don't deal with money as we ought to. We don't treat it as the gift that it is from God. We abuse it. We pervert it. We don't look at it in an orderly kind of fashion. So it's very important that we do so. And again, because it has such a bearing on our own spiritual life, our own spiritual fruitfulness. It affects our life tremendously. And how we deal with money, how we relate to money, says a lot about who we are as believers. Money very really is life. Don't we spend a considerable amount of time and energy trying to get it? I mean, hours upon hours upon hours upon weeks upon weeks. Tremendous amount of our time and energy is focused on getting money, isn't it? Now, if that's true, then in a very real sense, money is life because we spend so much of our life just to get it. Wouldn't you say then it's an important issue to understand? Have a good grasp of? Yes. Now some people <clears throat> have grown up with the understanding and the, and the feeling that, that somehow money is bad, it's dirty. No, money is really amoral. It is neither in and of itself, it is neither good nor bad. But what we do with it, do we do good things with it or bad things with it? The ramifications of how we use money can be either righteous ramifications or unrighteous ramifications in our life. Is that true? So we have to see money as just kind of neutral. It's all moral. And really, it is a gift from God to us. I mean, God knows we need it. We need it to survive, right? And he's given it to us. The Bible says he's given us all good things for us to enjoy, and that includes money. So money's neither of itself good nor bad. It's all moral. It's what we do with it that makes it good or bad. <clears throat> We're going to look at three major 
considerations with respect to money. And we'll look at the first one this morning and then the next two in the next week or so. <coughs> Excuse me. The first thing we're going to look at is the right to possess money. There seems sometimes to be a question in some people's minds and in some quarters in the church, not necessarily uh, here, but though there are some people who may struggle with this, does the Christian have the right to possess money? So we want to look at that issue this morning and, and find out what the scriptures have to say. The second area that we'll be looking at is the way to regard money. First, the, the right to possess it. Secondly, the way to regard it. And then thirdly, we'll be looking at the way to use money. What does the Bible say? How does God intend for us to use it? How does he intend for us to regard it? And does, in fact, he intend for us to have it? Well, to understand the first point, we need to ask ourselves this question. Does a Christian have the right to possess money? There are some people who would say no. There are, there are some people who would advocate a kind of Christian communism. They would say that uh, when you become a Christian, you should take all that you have and you should uh, pool it. You should sell everything and put it into a big pool, and then out of this pool it's all distributed. You say, well, where do they get that from? Well, they, they get that from <clears throat> the book of Acts. I want you to turn there with me in chapter 2, and then we'll look again at chapter 4 in the book of Acts. This is in the early church, right after Pentecost, and the Lord had done a mighty work to add thousands of people to the church that very first day, and then people were continuing to be added day by day, Luke records. But he also records how they handled their money. And this passage is open to, I believe, uh, a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation, and I want to try to clear that up. In verse 42 of chapter 2 of Acts, Luke writes this, They devoted themselves, the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So there were some significant elements in the life of the early church. They were fellowshipping together, they were getting together, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the God's word, they were praying, and they were eating together. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So it seems to be a work of an apostle to do wonders and miraculous signs. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Now that phrase, had everything in common, some people will pick up on and say, you see, the Bible says that we should pool everything, we should have everything in common. Well, if you take that phrase and you just isolate it like that, yeah, that's what it would seem to say. But the context doesn't indicate that. The context indicates something different. The context indicates that they had a mentality, a giving mentality. They didn't just sell everything and pool it all and then distribute it all at once. But they had a mentality, an attitude of, you know, I'm not going to hold on to this. If there's a need, then I'll sell it and I'll, and I'll give the proceeds to meet that need. Very, very important. It wasn't Christian communism. There, was, there is a right to possess property. But at the same time, there's a responsibility if there's a need. And John says if, 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 there, if we see our brother in need and we are possessing the world's goods, that if we don't meet that need, 
then the love of God is not in us. So God gives us the, the great privilege to possess and to have money and, and so forth. But if there's a need, let's take of what we have and let's go meet that need. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the last part, the way to use money. <clears throat> so people will say, well, that, that, that means that we should pool everything. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Now look at in verse 45. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Now again, they'll read that passage and they'll say, well, see, they, they, they sold everything. Then they just gave the money out. No, in the Greek, those verbs are in the imperfect tense. That means that over a long period of time, as a need arose, they would sell something. And again, we'll see this in chapter 4. They didn't sell everything all at once. They sold a little bit here, a little bit there as a need arose, and they went and met that need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, you see what, what a gracious, giving community is all about? If you, if you thought that to join the church, that you had to come in and sell everything all at once and pool it, would you come in and join the church? Absolutely not. No. Now, some people would, but the majority of people would not. But if you, if you felt to join the church as you gave your life to Christ, you saw and you observed this very gracious, loving, giving community that when there was a need, people rushed to meet that need. Would that attract you to the church? Sure it would. Can you see how God works through people and works through a giving attitude? a selfless, not a selfish attitude, and how that attracted people, and the Lord would add daily to the church those who were being saved. You see that? So we have a right to possess money. But when we possess it, we have to possess it with the mind that it's God's, He's really entrusted it to us, and that when there's a need, that we should be uh, free enough to be able to go meet that particular need. Look at chapter 4 of Acts. Just flip the page over. <clears throat> And verse 32. He says, all the believers were one in, mind, one in heart and mind. They were all moving in the same direction. There was no division. People weren't off doing their own thing. They were all in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but he shared everything they had. Again, this displays this mentality, this attitude of, of openness to giving and sharing wherever a need would come up. They weren't holding on to stuff. They said, well, this is mine, and you know, I'll give that stuff, but the, the good stuff I'm going to keep. You ever see kids? You know, there's a parent, you're, I don't think of, there's a parent alive that just hasn't grieved over and struggled with trying to teach their kids how to share, right? And boy, how you just go, oh my, when you see that selfishness displayed. And you say, well, now share that with your brother. No! <laughs> you know, this is mine! J.C., you don't do that, do you? No, I didn't think so. But you see, the early church didn't have that attitude. Well, I'm sure there were people here and there that did, but, but by and large, the general attitude in the church was one that, that they didn't say, this is mine. They said, well, you know, whatever I have is yours. If I can help you, whatever it takes. Isn't that astounding? And incidentally, when you read the, the study of the whole history of the New Testament and the early church, 
and, and the church down through the ages, the only place this ever really happened with any degree of significance or consistency was the church of Jerusalem. And it's happened in pockets throughout church history, but on the scale that it's happened in Jerusalem, it's never happened before any place else. And I've read and studied church history. <clears throat> no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, okay, here it comes, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So you see this ongoing process of people taking of what they have, selling it and using the proceeds to minister to any existing need in the particular body. Now later on, the church of Jerusalem would become terrifically impoverished. And that was largely due to the fact that they, they were all, you know, of course, Jewish. And the Jewish community was very tight. But when these people began to profess Jesus, there was a tremendous rift between the Jews and the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And then what happened is all the friends and relatives and so forth of the Jewish believers began to put distance between themselves and uh, these Jewish believers. And the Jewish believers became isolated. They couldn't do business. They couldn't function. They had no viable source of income because they were being uh, blackmailed and held hostage because of their faith. And so that's when the Jerusalem church became tremendously impoverished. They exhausted their resources helping one another, and they had no other viable source of, of uh, income and support. And hence, Paul goes around, and you read about in the book of Acts, how he takes a collection amongst all the Gentile churches to come and relieve the saints in Jerusalem of their poverty. Awesome, huh? How the Gentiles come to the aid of, the, of our, their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So we have a right to possess money, and the Bible does not teach Christian communism. And if you labor over that, and many people struggle, that God has blessed them abundantly. A man came to me after the Friday night service, and he said, you know, I have, God has really blessed me, and I make great, big, oodles amounts of money. He said, and you know, sometimes I really struggle with that. I said, you call me Tuesday, and we'll make an appointment. <laughs> Talk about that. All money belongs to who? God. The Bible says it categorically. Haggai, chapter 2, verse 8. Don't turn there. It's in your notes. You can write it in. Haggai, chapter 2, verse 8. God, in speaking, the context he's speaking to is he's speaking of all the nations of the world, and he says this very poignant statement. He says, all the gold and all the silver is really mine, says the Lord Almighty. So it's all God's. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. Well, if it's all God's, does he want us to have some? Yes. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, listen to what he says. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to gain wealth. God has given man the ability to get that which is God's. Now, when the scriptures use the word wealth, biblically, it's a kind of a technical term. It doesn't mean wealth in the sense that you and I would say wealth. It means something as opposed to nothing. Okay? And believe me, all of us sitting in this room are amongst the wealthy of the entire world. I mean, in comparison to 
the majority of people in the rest of the world, we are very, very, very wealthy. Would you agree with me? I mean, there are people in the world who would, could never dream, possibly, of earning in one year what most of us earn in a week. So we are very, very wealthy. But that term wealth in the Bible means, essentially, something as opposed to nothing. And it's God who gives us the ability. And so Moses, instructing the people, he says, now don't forget God. Remember, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And he says, don't forget God, because it's he who gives you the ability to gain wealth, to gain that which he possesses, which belongs to him. And indeed, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, he says, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? God has given us all that belongs to him. Think of money, indeed, as we've said earlier, as a gift from God. What do men typically do with God's gifts? Don't they ultimately end up perverting them? I mean, think of it. I mean, food, isn't food a gift from God? And don't we pervert it? Our very health is a gift from God. How hard it is to maintain our health, isn't it? Marriage, is marriage not a gift from God? Every time I perform a wedding ceremony... I have to really fight hard and resist the temptation to cynicism. As I pronounce a blessing on a couple and as we, as we share vows and as I, I pray for them, I say, oh God, keep this couple. The divorce rate is horrendous in the church. People walking away from their vows. They're, they don't treat this other person as a gift from God. Isn't this other person a gift from God? And what you do with a gift speaks loudly of what you think of the gift giver, doesn't it? Isn't that true? I mean, Aunt Tilly gives you a funny-looking lamp for Christmas. And you look at it, you open the package, you say, Oh my, how wonderful. Thank you, Aunt Tilly. Aunt Tilly leaves, and you put it back in the box and stick it up on the shelf, Right? Until he goes back home, she comes out for a visit, it boxes down, it's out, you put it up on the... You want Antilly to see that gift, don't you? What you do with the gift says what you think of the gift giver. What we do with all the gifts God gives us in our money says what we think of him. You see the relationship between money and our own spiritual fruitfulness, our own spiritual life? Very, very important. We have a proper perspective on money. <coughs> Excuse me. So money is a gift from God. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And this is, in, by the way, in the context of a passage talking about money. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now that term enjoyment doesn't mean indulgence. That term enjoyment means to make our life enjoyable. I mean, life is hard, isn't it? Life is hard. God means for us to enjoy life, and he gives us all good things that we might enjoy life, and we pervert it, and we take all these good things, and we indulge ourselves in them, and then we find out that life is not nearly as enjoyable as we'd hoped it would be. We trust in the things, not in God. God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy. 
That may come as a surprise to some. He's not longing that, that his people are in constant pain and agony and frustration. He wants us to enjoy life. Now, true suffering is a part of the Christian experience. But you know that you can have true joy in the midst of it? You can enjoy life in the midst of, of, uh, of, of the Christian life? Even when you're being persecuted, there's a true peace and inner contentment and joy to the Christian life? That comes from God. And money is one of those things that he gives us for our enjoyment. Job, was Job a wealthy man? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All those men in the scriptures were indeed wealthy men. They were blessed by God. So I think we can see that God intends for us to have money. He intends for us to have an enjoyable life. He intends for us to have a full life. Now, if we're going to have money, if all the money that is God's, God desires to give to his people, he means for his people to have some of his money, then how do we get it? How do we, how do we get God's money? God has given us three ways to get it. Okay? And these aren't um, things that you don't already know, but they bear repeating. The first way that we gain wealth, now get ready, are you ready for this? The very first way is work. That's right, work. God has designed and work for us to enable us to get wealth, to get money. Now, work is not just something that's, that's just come along. Work has always been in God's plan. In the book of Genesis, in the first chapter, when God creates man, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, a number of things, but one of the things is that God is a productive God. And if I'm made in his image, God means for me to be productive. Right? How do you feel when you're not being productive? Lousy. Frustrated. <clears throat> you get angry with self, you get angry with people around you. If your goal to be productive is frustrated... I mean, there are lots of people who want to be productive, but, but they've been frustrated. They've not been taught. They don't have the skills. Uh, horribly frustrated. You find them lashing out in anger. I mean, you see it all over the place. I mean, look at, go downtown Los Angeles, go into Watts, go into the impoverished areas of our city, and you see people who are ill-equipped to be productive. And what do you have happening? You've got people who are longing to be productive but don't know how to be productive because they've not been equipped. It's not that they don't want to be. God has made men to be productive. He's made men to work. Indeed, in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15, after God creates the man, the writer says that he put him in the garden, and he put him in the garden to lay around, take it easy, and enjoy himself. Is that what it says? No. He put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it, to maintain it. <clears throat> that says a lot. I mean, here's an ideal setting. In an ideal setting, an ideal being is supposed to work. If that's true there, it's even more true in our own existence. And that even says something about what's coming in the future. Beloved, you and I have work to do even in heaven. Isn't that exciting? I mean, 
Think about it. Heaven, when you think about heaven in terms of, well, we're just going to kind of be up there and you know, everybody's going to be flapping their wings and polishing their <laughs> halos and plunking their harps. That's boring, isn't it? I mean, admit it, that's boring. But if there's a prospect that there's something incredibly significant for us to do that we can do in an unhindered fashion that God has created for us to do, if there's substantial work to be done in heaven, that makes heaven a whole lot more attractive, doesn't it? We're going to worship him, we're going to see him face to face, but God has work for us to do in heaven. And while we're on this earth, we are training we are learning how to be faithful at the work that he puts to our hand, that when we get there, that we can hear those words, well done, thou what? Good and faithful servant. Isn't that exciting? Work. We gain wealth. That's the very first way in which God has created and designed for us to gain wealth by work. Listen to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Hard work. Are you working hard? Are you working hard in your life? Because you are, you're gonna, it's going to bring you a profit. Now there's some other things here that are going go to go to work with this. It's not just work. Some people say, well, I, man, I work hard, but I can never seem to get ahead. We have some other things to talk about, too. There's other principles in the Scriptures that you need to begin to apply. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. A very practical principle. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, he says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, what's the other half of it? He shall not eat. Now, some people use that to apply to a lot of the people who are really impoverished today in terms of homelessness and so forth, that, that these people ought not to eat. Well, beloved, there's some people who cannot work. There's some people who are so debilitated that they cannot work, and they're going to take a, a tremendous amount of time and energy just to get their, get their thinking processes straight so that they could hold down a job. We get them coming in here every day, wandering in, mindless. They've not been productive, and, and they've, they've withered on the vine, literally. That's not what the Scriptures are talking about. The Scriptures are talking about people who can work, who are able to work, who will not work. Now, in Thessalonica, that church there, what had happened, the reason Paul says this, is because there were a lot of people in the church at that particular time who were expecting any moment Jesus to come back. And so what they did is they quit their jobs and they were just kind of laying around. Verse 11 says they're not busy, they're busy bodies. And when you're not working, being productive, what do you end up being? A busy body. You've not got something to put your hand to. What do you end up doing? You end up talking, don't you? Yes. You've got to have something to put your hands to, to work, to be productive. But the church of Thessalonica, there were lots of people who were kicking back, saying, well, Jesus is coming back, man, I'm just going to be cool. And Paul admonishes them, he says, no. If you're able to work, you're not working, you don't eat. A lot of parents need to learn this with their kids. Those kids aren't working, and they have chores to do, and they're not doing them, they don't eat. You see how fast they start working. 
believe me. You just have to have a little courage, parents. Mom? But dear, poor little Johnny, he's got a tummy ache. Can we just give him a little? No. <laughs> oh, he's mean. You know, there was a book recently, it was just out uh, last month or last couple months, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Going to Come Back in 1988. Did anybody, anybody hear it, read about it? Yeah, some of you heard about it. Do you know that a lot of people, a lot of Christians, especially in Southern California, read that book and really believed that Jesus was going to come back? And, they gave, and the author gave 88 reasons why Jesus was going to come back. It's obvious he didn't come back. We're all still here, right? But you know that a lot of Christians read that book quit their jobs, and ran up their charge cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I often wondered if Jesus was going to come back, if that's the reason he didn't come back. <laughs> Run around your charge cards yet? Go ahead. I think I'll tarry a little while and let you sit in that foolishness that you just did. If you're able to work and you're not working, you don't eat. Work is a divinely instituted principle by God to gain what he has. Amen? All right. Listen to um, <clears throat> Proverbs verses 6 and 8. Turn there with me. I want you to see this. Proverbs 6, verses 6 and 8. Page 651. 651. Another example of hard work, a very, very practical principle. He says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. You know what he's saying? He says, listen, you lazy people. Check out the ant. It doesn't have an employer, doesn't have a boss, and yet there it goes, just like clockwork, doing its work. Gathers up what it needs, stores up what it needs. The ant. He says lazy people need to learn from the ant. Work. God intends men to work if they are to gain wealth. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. Solomon says, if you won't plant in season... If you won't plant in season at the harvest, you'll find nothing. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Does that mean he loses his salvation? No, it just means that his testimony is worthless. He says he's a Christian, he says he's a different person. Show it to me, James says, by your works. Show me your life. You're worse than an unbeliever with respect to your testimony. You're a greater hypocrite, a bigger liar, if you're not providing for your family. Very important principles. The Bible has a lot to say about this stuff, doesn't it? Work. So work is designed by... Save. You mean God means to have, for us to have a savings account? Yes. God means for us to save. That's the second biblical principle to help a man gain wealth. Proverbs 21, verse 20. In the house of the wise, in the house of the wise, are stores of choice 
food, and oil. But a foolish man devours all that he has. You see what the wise man does? What does the wise man do? The wise man has a store, doesn't he? The wise man has a margin. But the foolish man just consumes everything that comes in. Doesn't save up. Doesn't have a store. Doesn't operate on a margin. Listen to how the Living Bible translates this. And incidentally, if you like to read Psalms and Proverbs, and I recommend that you read them regularly, read them also in the Living Bible. Living Bible is a marvelous translation of Psalms and Proverbs. Listen to how the Living Bible translates that verse. He said, the wise man saves for the future, the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Good advice, huh? Absolutely. You know where that, that advice comes from? The wisest man in the world, <laughs> Solomon who was also, by the way, the richest man in the world. He made some mistakes, however. We'll talk about that next time. Now, one good way to think about saving is this. Always operate on a margin. You say, what do you mean by a margin? Don't spend everything. Out of your income, you need to have a certain portion that goes to savings. You have a margin, a margin to operate on, one, in case of an emergency, in case of an unexpected need that comes up, and two, when the Holy Spirit may say, here's a need over here. Take out of the margin that you have and go meet the need. You say, well, I, I have this margin over here, and if I go meet that need, then what happens if I have a need? Give, and it shall be given to you. See, what you do with your money really says what you think about God. Is he true to his word? Is he faithful? Will he take care of you? Will he provide for you? We say yes, but do we demonstrate that with our life? Our possessions, our money? By and large, no. Sadly. God means for us to have this margin. Beloved, if you don't have a margin, you find yourself in a position where you're going to have to presume on God's grace. People today, and in the church, this is sadly the case, People today are running around, they're spending money they don't have to buy things they don't need from people they don't know to impress the people they don't like. <laughs> Is that not true? You go to work and your, your, your workmate in your office has just bought a brand new car, a brand new Belchfire 8 or whatever. <laughs> Batmobile, I don't know, you know, these <laughs> super-duper $400,000 cars now, I don't know. And you know, you look at it and you're driving a car that's 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. And you're thinking, boy, that looks nice. I got this savings account, and I, you know, if I, drew, if I work it right, I could just make the payments. Can you, you, you hear what I'm saying? Is it tempting? You see that nice car, you get back there, you say, well, can I sit in it? And you sit behind the wheel and say, oh, this is nice, and a five-speed, and... Boy, and it's long, not long before you're thinking, well, you know, I, I deserve something like that. And there are people going out and doing that. If you buy a car, buy a used car. You can get a good car, 18 months old. You save all the depreciation. You get a car that runs great for five, six, seven years if you take care of it. You need to buy a brand new car. But people are going out and doing it. They're indulging themselves. And when they indulge themselves, they're finding that they use up their margin because they're trying to, trying to make the car payment. And then on top of that, you've got to make the insurance payment. 
You're thinking, man, I better not lose my job. If I lose my job, we're in big trouble. But there's lots of people that's happening to. And when, you find, when that happens, you begin to see that not only do you end up losing the car, you end up losing self-respect, you end up losing this, that, and the other. And finally, your testimony is right down the tubes. And you're crying out and saying, God, save me! You end up presuming on God, expecting Him to deliver you from your own foolishness. God means for us, beloved, to save, to have a margin. If you do not have a margin, you're living beyond your means. Let me say that again. If you do not have a margin, if you don't have a savings account that is growing, you are living beyond your means, you are sinning. You hear me? You say, well, I don't, I don't make enough money. Get another job. I talked to a girl here on Friday night after the service. She says, she's got these debts, and she did some foolishness. And she says, well, I can't seem to get ahead. I said, get two jobs. That never occurred to her. Get two jobs. Save. Do you know the miracle of compounding interest? Do you understand that? It's, it's, absolutely, it's, a, it's an incredible miracle of God. You start saving money, and after a while, as it begins to compound, it begins to escalate at a logarithmic rate. It just takes off. Save. So that you have a margin to operate on out of your own life, and then when the Holy Spirit comes and says, here's a need, you can rush in and meet that need. Exciting, huh? Work. What's the other one? Save. Save. You want to gain wealth? Start working. Start saving. Listen to what David says about presumption. Psalm 19, he says, Oh Lord, preserve your servant from willful or presumptuous sins. Don't allow me to presume on you, O oh God. Do you remember when Satan took Jesus up to the top of the temple to the highest point? Matthew chapter 4. He said, throw yourself off. He'll have to save you. And he quotes scripture and he quotes the 91st Psalm. Give his angels charge over you. God has to save you. Throw yourself off. And what did Jesus say? Don't put the Lord to the test. Don't presume on God's grace. Don't get yourself out there in some foolish thing and expect that God has to deliver you from it. There's a law of sowing and reaping to deal with, right? So save. Save. God wants every Christian to have money, and he wants you to have more than you need so that you can operate on a margin. He wants you to have more than you need so that you can operate on a margin. He wants you to be able to spend some, and he wants you to save some, very simply. Here's the third principle. Plan. Plan. That's a tough one, isn't it? What's the first one? What's the first one? What's the first one? What's the second one? Save. What's the third one? Plan. Plan. This is where people really get balled up. Some people, a lot of people are working. A lot of people are saving. But you know what? They, they're falling behind. You know why? Because they're not planning. They're not planning. Planning is the third biblical principle that God has designed for men to gain wealth. Plan. You say, well, what do you mean by plan? Have some priorities. Have some priorities. Have a budget. You know how some people budget? They say, oh, it'll all work out. 
Some of you have said that, I can see. He just kind of blinds well, I don't know, but it'll all work out. What do you mean I'm out of money? I still have checks in my checkbook. <laughs> Plan. Have some priorities. Have a budget. Now, some people need a much more sophisticated budget than do others, but you need a budget. You've got to put yourself on a spending limit. Would you agree with me? Absolutely. Keep records. Oh, this is a killer. People hate to keep records. People are just lazy about budgeting and keeping records. Keep good records. Have priorities. Whose money are we handling? Whose money? God's money. If a lot of people today were working for a corporation and handling the corporation's money like they handle God's money, they'd put, be put in jail for embezzlement, for misuse of funds. Would you agree with me? I mean, you go to work for some corporation, aren't you going to just, I mean, you're going to watch everything. I mean, people today, you handle a cash register, man, you better balance, right? You better balance. Tellers in the bank, they better balance, right? But are we doing that in our own personal lives? Are we keeping records? Are we setting priorities? Are we budgeting? Are we being excellent stewards over that which God has given us? By and large, no. We're being very sloppy with God's money. We ought to be in jail. But thank the Lord for his grace, huh? Thank the Lord for his grace. That doesn't excuse us. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves sometimes the way we handle his money. Proverbs 27, verses 23 and 24 Listen to what he says. Be sure, this has regard to planning, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. You say, wait a minute, I don't have any flocks and herds. There's a principle there. He's talking to an agricultural kind of society. He says, he says pay attention. Know the condition of your money, your resources. Be, make sure you pay close and careful attention. He says, for riches do not endure, and a crown is not secure for all generations. It isn't always going to be there, so you best do some good planning, some good prioritizing, keep some good records. The Living Bible says in Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4, any enterprise, this is, I love this, any enterprise is built by wise planning, becomes strong through common sense, and profits wonderfully by keeping abreast of the facts. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. So we're not only to work, but we're also to save, and we're also to, what's the last one? Plan. We have in our church <clears throat> about a $3 million a year budget. And I mean, that doesn't include call to grow. That's just our yearly budget. God has blessed us wonderfully. He's anointed us. We can do lots of things in terms of program and outreach and ministry because of how he's blessed us. But I'm convinced that he's blessed us largely because we're good stewards over what he's given us. We have a, we have a budget that we work very, very hard on for months. We keep extremely accurate records. And if you don't believe me, ask Rick Thompson. That's his job. He's our administrative pastor. 
He slaves over his computer every day. We have records that you wouldn't believe. The detail is incredible. We're taking very good care of God's money. And God continues to bless us. We plan. Your, your staff pastors, there's 12 of them. I can't tell you how many hours we spend planning and thinking and praying about program and what the direction and so forth is. We don't just go off and do stuff willy-nilly. Because God says that we should plan, that we should take careful stock of where we are and how we use his money. Very, very important. Now we're going to continue with this next week, but I want to leave you with this. God intends for us to have money. It's his money. He intends for us to have some. He intends for us to gain wealth. How does he intend for us to gain wealth? What's the first way? What's the second way? What's the third way? If you're not doing it, start. Go to your mini church this week. If you don't have a budget, if you don't have a budget, a clear, concise budget, you go to your mini church this week and you sit down and you say, help me make out a budget. You say, oh no, not me. I don't want him to know what I do with his money. You need to be vulnerable. You need to be accountable. You go and have someone help you work out a budget. Plan. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the great gifts you give us. We thank you that all the gold and all the silver in the world is yours and that you desire for us to have some of it. Give us wisdom, O oh God, as we implement these three wonderful principles, as we learn how to work and how to honor our work. Help us who are maybe crabby about our jobs to not be crabby, but to be thankful, to praise you, to bless your name for them. Help us to be people who save. And Father, help us to be people who plan. We love you this morning, and we thank you for your grace to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to continue this next week, so bring your notes.